Xi Jinping, I think, is in a class by himself from the point of importance. I don't say that just to be polite because I'm speaking to China. It's because Xi Jinping's got to lead, has to lead China. That's his job. But the reality is, what happens in to most of the rest of humanity is going to be determined by the decisions which are taken in China. 2023 may be a very crucial year for how mankind as a whole would realize the dire consequences of AI development in an uncontrollable manner, and whether mankind eventually will need to come up with some framework to regulate the rapid development of AI in general. You don't have a perfect government, but it's much better than most. And above all, it's built to respond to crises and to make substantial progress, whatever the headwinds. So it might be a hard year everywhere, but it won't be as bad in China as it is in other places. So if you are in China, or even if you're somewhere else, get your own house in order, be healthy, be kind, and prepare yourself and your families to make the most of your strength. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. Today we're having a review of the past year and a brief preview of the new year with John Ross, senior fellow at Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China; Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations, East China Normal University. And Victor Gao, chair professor at Suzhou University. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Let's start with a question to all of you. How would you summarize year 2022? Let's begin with Victor. Thank you very much. I think year 2022 is a year of great crisis, a year of war or peace, a year of a multitude of disasters, and a year of. Energy crisis, financial crisis, inflation—a compounding negative impact on the whole world. And I don't think we are completely out of the woods yet because of all these multitude of crises、uh, compounded in 2022. And there is reason to be very much concerned about what the world is heading to in the new year. Indeed,、uh, some people would.、Um... Actually, leave this year behind with little fondness. So, Joseph, what's your take here? It was a year of extremes:、uh, extreme weather, extreme fighting in Ukraine, extreme inflation, extreme energy crises, extreme anti-China containment policies from the United States, and finally, in Shanghai, we went from a zero COVID policy to a dynamic COVID landscape. We saw a multi-month lockdown early this year, then the current massive surge of infections. Uh, that we're fighting now,、mm, indeed. And、uh, John, well, I, I would agree with both of those views. This is an extremes and crisis, but I would pose the question: is is there going to be a return to normal, or is this the beginning of a period of greater instability?、Um, I think it's the beginning of a period of greater instability, because I think two events stand out really during the year. The first was the twentieth Party Congress of the CPC. Because this set China on the path towards—I'm an economist, so I look at it in these terms—becoming a high-income economy. This will become a modern socialist high-income economy, with on all the conditions for that. We thought it will take, of course, another next key market in 2035, laid down by China, when basically China will get to about the living standards of one of the lower 
level West European countries, say Portugal or Spain at the present time in approximate terms. And this is this means that 18% of the world's population is going to become living in high income economies. More 18% more is only 16% at the present time. So it's a tremendous step forward for China and a tremendous step forward for humanity. And secondly, I'm afraid that the United States, which has been losing in peaceful economic competition has decided basically to see if it can use military means to try to reverse its decline. And this is extremely dangerous because really this is what created the war in Ukraine. It was the decision by the United States that was prepared to risk the confrontation with the nuclear armed power, Russia, by something which it knew was totally unacceptable to Russia, which was to attempt to bring Ukraine into NATO or to threaten to bring Ukraine into NATO. Previously, the United States only militarily attacked um, developing countries, Iraq or Libya or Serbia. And for the first time, the United States is prepared to provoke a confrontation with a nuclear armed state. And this is a qualitative passing the threshold on the part of adventurism by the United States. So I'm afraid that the instability, particularly caused by the latter, that is the in- simultaneous inability of the United States to win in peaceful competition, economic competition, and the, the willingness of the United States to consider, therefore, trying to use military means to try to reverse its decline is going to get the world into a situation of more instability. I, I wish I could say the reverse and that we were going to return to normal, the previous situation, but in very serious matters, there's no point in having hopes or illusions. There's only a point in having a realistic view of the situation. So that would be my estimate of the situation, both a crisis and enter into a greater period of instability. Mm. John, you've already named a two, and I want each of you to get me three of those most significant uh, events, you would say, um, that shaped China and the rest of the world over the past year. What else events do you have in mind? Well, the two two that I mentioned are the 20th Party Congress, the CPC, and the war in Ukraine. The other one has got to be the continuation of the, the consequences of the COVID pandemic, particularly the extraordinary stagflation crisis which now exists in the Western economies. I mean, you now have a situation, if you go back, this is the highest inflation in the United States for now for 40 years. It's not created by the war in Ukraine. This is a total falsification. It's easy to show 95% of the inflation already taken place in the US before the war broke out. So it can't possibly be due to the war. It was due to the economic policies which pursued in the United States. But you've got the combination of the fact that you've got the highest inflation for 40 years. But if you go back 40 years, the US economy was growing twice as fast as it does now. It was growing around 4% a year. And now it grows at around 2% a year and declining. So therefore, from the point of view of the stag part, that is the stagnation part of the stagflation, uh, you've got the most serious situation in the United States since World War II. And the immediate cause of the inflation was the totally false economic response made by the United States to COVID, a vast consumer stimulus, which it couldn't afford, with no investment in um, production, which unleashed a inflationary tsunami throughout the world. So it's, I'll slightly cheat, but I'll divide it into two. I'll say it's its the COVID consequences, but COVID both in its direct consequences and in its indirect economic consequences. That's the third element I put into the situation. Mm. And uh, to Joseph, you've already mentioned um, this COVID. China's uh, COVID policy shift could be one thing that you deem a very important uh, event over the past year. And what else do you have? Well, I, I agree substantially with John. I think when we look at the past year in terms of events, collectively, if we look at all the various actions that make up what has become now clear uh, in terms of America's anti-China containment. Uh, And I would include Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. I would include the decision to station nuclear bombers in Australia, the the decision previously to sell nuclear submarines to Australia, the the, um, CHIPS legislation, which is basically a new type of trade war on steroids that's really just trying to to choke China's high-tech development to death. I think it became incredibly clear this year 
that the United States is completely committed, not only in terms of the proxy war that it's fighting in Ukraine, but its longer term strategic aims against China. And I don't think we can continue by any stretch until there is a major reversal to believe that the U.S. has anything other than malintentions, the worst intentions towards China. And I think we have to constantly be, be on our toes to try to avoid Taiwan becoming a new Ukraine. So, you know, there are many events within that overall policy. The other thing that I always come back to is we have extreme weather right now in the United States. We have it in my home state, the TVA region, with um, rolling lockdowns we had in, in the past week. We had the terrible weather in Buffalo, that uh, upstate New York, that killed a lot of people. We had the terrible weather in China this summer that created uh, or exasperated energy crisis. And um, I remain more and more convinced as the year goes by that we're in this dark period where we are not doing anything of substance globally. We know China is doing a lot domestically, but we're not doing enough globally to fight climate change. And my sense is, whether we like it or not, whether there's intentionality or not, we're starting to see governments play strategic endgames, assuming that the worst of, of climate change is coming. We know that uh, the science, at least, indicates the strong likelihood that novel outbreaks like COVID are closely correlated with climate change, that we should expect more outbreaks, more disease, and that uh, all of this is just going to you know, end up in a spiral that leads us into um, more and more tenuous position, not only facing increasing conflict among ourselves, but completely undermining our capacity to, to respond uh, in an effective way to climate change. Yeah, indeed. Climate change is a very important topic over the past year, not just over the past year, but it's been decades already. And to Victor, I know you're now in the States and you, you said it's first time in three years you've stepped out of the, not necessarily overseas, mm -hmm. but a travel to the States. This could be a significant event for you yourself personally, but what about other major events that you think could affect China and the rest of the world? First of all, my current visit to the United States focusing on uh, New York City and Washington, D.C. is, for me, a very extraordinary thing because for the past three years, I've been homebound in China, doing only domestic travels to different cities. But I've never left China for three years. And this is truly extraordinary because prior to the COVID outbreak, I normally travel a minimum of half a million kilometers every year. So a lot of international travels to different parts of the world to make speeches, to attend all kinds of meetings. So I think uh, like the uh, resumption of this kind of face-to-face -face meetings with people from all walks of life. And uh, uh, for my current visit to the United States, I'm very sorry to say that I can really feel a chill in the relations between China and the United States. This is very much due to the fact that the US government is now really uh, maximizing the pressure against China and also deal with China more or less as an enemy. And this has definitely spilled over effects to all kinds of discussions uh, with people in different walks of life, I would say. I'm afraid it will take some time before this will really hit the bottom and eventually, hopefully, it will recover. And uh, how long it will take before the relations will be normalized, I do not know. I would say at least we need to wait until the size of the Chinese economy is at least surpassing that of the United States, uh, roughly around 2030, more or less. And uh, beyond that point, Yes, we, we all know that uh, the deteriorating uh, Sino-U.S. relations is a very significant, I wouldn't say event, but it's something ongoing for years already. But reviewing the past year, has anything you know that happened or developed beyond your expectation over the past year? The Sino-U.S. Uh, worsened relationship is something that I think most people would expect to come. But is there anything that you know went out of your expectation over the past year? 
Well, allow me to zoom in on China-U.S. relations. I think what gave me hope is what happened in Bali, the summit meeting between President Xi Jinping of China and President Joe Biden of the United States. I think history will judge this summit meeting as really the first time when China and the United States walk onto the global stage more or less as an equal, and uh, President Biden said the right thing to the maximum uh, extent. And it remains to be seen, of course, whether the United States will follow up with the right walk, whether it will walk the right walk or not. And that may be really a very challenging thing for us to really zoom in and uh, monitor the situation. So I think the summit meeting in Bali gave uh, mankind a reason to be hopeful. However, there is no reason to expect that China-U.S. relations have already hit the bottom. It will continue to deteriorate. Yeah. John, looking back to the past 12 months, has anything happened or developed beyond your expectation other than the Ukraine crisis? Well, actually, just to say about Ukraine, I was not surprised. 30 years ago, when I was living in Moscow, and I was advising companies at that time, I said there's going to be a civil war in the Ukraine. Now, it, it, it's true that the, the time scale was longer than I expected. I expected it to break out maybe in 10, 15 years. But said, said it took 30 years to break out, but it's not a surprise. And I can also show it very easily because to friends, at the beginning of the year, they were writing things in the media saying, no, it's all exaggerated. Let's talk about war, et cetera, et cetera. And I sent out emails to them saying, yeah, it's not exaggerated. Don't say that. You'll be, you'll be proved wrong. The reason is, is very simple because the Ukraine is a deadly threat. The NATO and Ukraine is a deadly threat to Russia. The United States was prepared to risk the world war to have a um, to prevent uh, Soviet missiles being in Cuba, and Cuba is twice the distance from Kiev to Moscow. So you know how the U.S. responded to the Cuban events in Cuba, and therefore you can anticipate how Russia will respond. But leave that aside. That's just because just to make the point, I wasn't surprised. But that was one event that didn't surprise me at all. The two things which I know was. Nothing was fundamentally on the course in the sense that I anticipated that the international situation was going to get worse, that the U.S. would respond to its, its economic decline by resorting to military means. Two things struck me. One is the extraordinary failure of the majority of the world to go along with U.S. sanctions against Russia over the Ukraine war. If you take the voting, or if you take the countries which are imposing sanctions, countries which represent 85% of the world's population refuse to implement these sanctions. I mean, I'm not surprised by the nonsense which appears in the, in the Western media, but one, one's always sort of can be astonished in the sense that it confirms how out of line they can be. This All this presentation of the world is totally against with the United States around the question of the Ukraine, etc., is absolutely and completely false. Most countries want to keep out of it, and, and very, very few, apart from the US's closest allies, are prepared to go along with the US against sanctions against Russia. Um, actually, this refusal to go along with the US, even by some of its closest allies, um, Modi, for example, in India, he's not necessarily the closest ally, but has been seeing good relations with the US, has totally refused to go along. He's buying more oil from Russia now, India is, than before the war. Uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean, who could look at that Saudi Arabia couldn't be closer. Now, what is happening is Saudi Arabia is not taking phone calls from Biden, but is, um, as you would say in the West, laying out the red carpet for Xi Jinping, visiting there. And um, these are things which are somewhat sad, colored, detailed things. And the other is the trend which is a beginning occurring in Latin America, uh, which is the highlighted by the election of President um, Lula in Brazil, who would take office on, on the 1st of January. What you have is a whole series of what is traditionally the American backyard of countries which they, they want to pursue a part of independence, their own development. They don't want hostile relations with the US. They'd like to have good relations with the United States and the rest of the world, including China, but they're not going to have bad relations with the rest of the world, including China, because the US wants it. So these are what you might call important bits which show the character of the jigsaw within what is a negative trend because of 
the US. This is the degree of resistance to what is a very dangerous course, which the United States has embarked upon. At a point, this is Victor. Are you, you asked what surprised uh, people, for example, in 2022. I think the political instability in the United Kingdom, uh, centering on the billion budget, really took me by complete surprise. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that you know there were so many uh, prime ministers, one after another, and so many uh, uh, treasury secretaries, for example, and uh, then this mini budget being proposed and taking the whole world by surprise, uh, even forcing the IMF, for example, and the World Bank to come up with condemnation, even forcing President Joe Biden of the United States to be highly critical of the mini budget, and eventually leading to the sharp drop of the value of the pound, for example, and the huge additional cost uh, to the financial market in uh, Britain as a whole. I would say this was exactly the opposite of what I used to understand as the conservatism and the prudency, for example, demonstrated by the very sophisticated statesmen or politicians in the United Kingdom as a whole. Now, what does this mean remains to be seen. And whether Britain can really pick up the pieces and move forward in a reformed way, become more mature, for example, and more sophisticated again. It not only applies to the domestic finance, for example, but also to the international policies of the United Kingdom. I will really be very much ashamed to see that Great Britain being eventually reduced to not only a shadow of what used to be, but also to become kind of a surrogate of the United States. This is really not in line with the legacy of such a great country having made so much of an impact on world history, both in positive way as as well as in negative way, of course. And I think what the United Kingdom or Great Britain will really be for the coming few years or 10 years later or beyond is really a puzzle remains to be unraveled. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. We're having a review of year 2022 and a preview of the new year. Last question for our part of reviewing the past year is each one of you naming one influential figure for year 2022. Victor? start with you. I would name Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine. Not that I agree with everything he has done, but at least he turned out to be a man of audacity, for example, and uh, he chose uh, to remain in Kyiv and to organize the fight against uh, Russia to defend Ukraine. Uh, This is highly impressive in a sense. However, I'm also very much curious as to whether President Zelensky has enough uh, wisdom to ward off the war to start with. Then once the war is forced upon Ukraine, uh, whether he can lead Ukraine out of this crisis with minimum deaths and injuries for the people of Ukraine, minimum uh, destructions or damages to Ukraine as a country, that remains to be seen. So I think uh, President Zelensky really stands out for 2022 whether he will eventually be judged as a savior of Ukraine or intentionally or uh, unintentionally bring a great disaster to the Ukrainian nation, that's something remaining to be seen. Mm. And Joseph? Well, I have three in the international sphere and, and three in China. To sure. begin with China, Xi Jinping, 
his uh, re-election as party head means China is resisting the sort of instability and polarization that's bedeviling most other countries. Uh, and I think this leaves China better prepared to deal with existing and new challenges. Second, uh, Wang Huning, you know, the so-called uh, brain of the party remains very near the top of the organization. Uh, he's been there from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao to now Xi Jinping, perhaps one of the greatest threads of intellectual continuity a government has seen in decades, perhaps even comparable in some ways to Cardinal Richelieu or Otto von Bismarck. Third, uh, Wang Yi. He's proven himself capable of remarkable adaptations in foreign policy and unflappable, uh, despite many foreign fools who keep flopping around, causing trouble. And I think uh, his continuation in his current roles indicates China has a clear direction and a steady hand in foreign policy. Internationally, Vladimir Putin, his decision to enter Ukraine certainly sent the world spinning backwards faster than it was. Second, uh, Olaf uh, Scholz. He entered office in December of last year after Merkel's long tenure and after a fractious campaign and after forming a tenuous government with the so-called traffic light coalition. Uh, expectations were rather low and his initial clumsiness appeared to confirm that he'd be a disaster. And although he allowed Germany to be strong-armed by the U.S. into uh, this proxy war in Ukraine, he has taken the lead in reaching out to China uh, against Washington's uh, desires, while also working hard to limit as much as possible the devastation associated with the energy crisis. Now, we know that Germany is still in trouble, but uh, it's managed to avoid some of the worst predictions, and he deserves some credit for this. It might not be enough to save the EU project, German industry, or his own political future, but uh, we should acknowledge him all the same. And finally, Lionel Messi, and everyone knows why. Uh, he won the World Cup, and that's the end of the story. Right. Uh, I would choose a Messi, too. Joseph mainly picked political figures. Let's see, John, if you have someone from other circles. No, not really, because I'm afraid this is one of the periods in which politics dominates. Um, All right, then. The world is it's normally better when the world well, po politics doesn't dominate, because most people don't want to spend their time thinking about politics. Most people would tend to spend their time further spend their time thinking about their family, their creative activities, their life in general, etc. Um, but I'm afraid um, when politics becomes dominant, it's normally because things are going badly. And that's overall in a crisis. I think the political figures have dominated last year, or much as I enjoyed Messi's victory in the World Cup. I must say that was, a if you put them, the most gripping event of the year, not the most important, but the right. most gripping, which got me jumping up and down on my seat was the World Cup final. I must say, I was pleased with that, but that's not the most important event of the year. All right, the if most you take important the, figures? Uh, I'd three. Firstly, Xi Jinping, I think, is in a class by himself from the point of importance. Uh, I don't say that just to be polite because I'm speaking to China because I, I don't believe in doing that type of thing. It's because Xi Jinping's got to lead, has to lead China. That's his job. But the reality is what happens in to most of the rest of humanity is going to be determined by the decisions which are taken in China. There are moments in history at which one country, the great German philosopher Hegel pointed out, there are moments in history at which one country dominates the situation. For example, during the French Revolution, France dominated the the world situation. We may say during the rise of the Industrial Revolution, Britain dominated the world um, situation. Let's say from 1917 through to 1945, the Soviet Union, in combination defeat of Nazi Germany, defeated, dominated the world situation. Today, China dominates the world situation. I don't mean in the sense that it, dom it which is dominating on the sense of hegemony, etc. It's just that the events in China are the most important events in the world at the present time, not only for China, but from the point of view of the whole of the world, for the reasons I gave at the beginning. China's economic success and its improvement in its living standards is the greatest ever seen in human history, in how many people are affected by it, the greatest proportion of the world population. And you have a country, the United States, which is trying to stop an enormous step forward for humanity.
which is the peaceful development of China. This makes the situation within China the most important situation in the whole world. And in that, Xi Jinping is leading that. And therefore, not only for China, but for the rest of the world, the decisions which Xi Jinping takes are the most crucial, most important decisions which are going to be taken in the world. And that's just the situation. If, if we look outside that, I'd pick out two people right. or two situations of particular importance. One is President Lula in Brazil. His election in Brazil for a third term will de facto make him the global leader of the global south because of his, his prestige, the weight of President Lula within the Latin America, and the fact that he pursued a policy of independence of Brazil. What he does will have crucial implications. And the third one is slightly more complicated because it's not a single person. It's the what I would call the situation in Russia. Russia finds itself confronted with a deadly threat to itself, which was the, the expansion of NATO. It decided to respond to this by the, the war in Ukraine. Let's leave aside whether that was the tactically correct decision or the right decision or not, because we can have differences about that was the best way to respond to it or not. But this threat to Russia by the United States, the United States sees that it has two obstacles to what it wants to do. One is China's economic success. The second is the importance of Russia. The United States decided to try to crush Russia. And um, as it was put by Sergei Glazyev, who's a minister in the Russian government very well, having failed to defeat China in a tariff war, it decided to um, provoke a conflict with Russia because it was seen as the weakest link. Russia is fight fighting back against that attack on itself. Let's leave aside which, whether the tactics are right or not and how Russia resolves that situation, of which Putin's the leader at the present, but it's a whole situation. That'll be the third most important event in the world and the third most important figures in the world. Radio, and let's leave 2022 behind and move on to a preview of the new year. So let's begin with uh, former Russian president and current uh, deputy head of the Security Council of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev's um, bold predictions for 2023. Among his 10 predictions are civil war in the United States with California and Texas becoming independent states as a result, the EU collapse after Britain's return, the euro dropping out of use as the EU currency, and all the largest stock markets and financial activity leaving the US and Europe and moving to Asia. He even predicted um, Elon Musk to have the possibility of taking the presidency. I wonder what you all think what's going to happen next year. Joseph, does any of his prophecies uh, seem real to you? Some, some say Medvedev's predictions are rather curses than predictions. I, you know, they're absolute nonsense. Uh, first, you know, Musk can't run for president because he wasn't born in the United States. Uh, and second, as we all know, there's no presidential election next year in 2023. So that one is doubly off the table from the start. Uh, most of the other predictions are even more absurd. Uh, I really see Germany and France probably getting their act together now, starting to come out of the, this fog they've been in over Ukraine. I think they're starting to coordinate and thinking about how they can resist the end of the U.S. project, or excuse me, the end of the EU project, the hands of the U.S., given this war in Ukraine. Uh, the only two that have the whiff of future credibility, and I'm sure John might disagree with me on this, and I'm just being an old Irish-American who's confused about things, is uh, the idea that Northern Ireland may at some point separate from the UK and rejoin Ireland, but we're nowhere near that now. And second, the uh, eventual collapse of Bretton Woods and the end of US dollar hegemony. But again, don't hold your breath or dump your dollars just yet. Right. And the, Joseph, uh, do you have anything in mind that you are most looking forward to and or most worried about in the coming year? Well, I can tell you that I'm not worried at all about Ukraine. Clearly, I, I, as, as a human being, I'm concerned about the loss of life and suffering and all of that's continuing. Uh, but I think in, in terms of uh, geostrategic consequences, I think it's reached an effective stalemate. 
now, and we just have to wait for the political will to embrace reality. I don't think we're at risk for further escalation. Uh, I don't think we're going to see a nuclear attack. Furthermore, and this is sort of a strange upside, I think the longer this conflict lingers, the, the more it increases uh, the chance of a global economic recession. And I do worry about that. But I also think the more it undercuts Biden's own anti-China policies as Europeans grow sick of Washington and Kiev. But that said, the thing that I'm worried most about is the possibility of a global recession and uh, that coming sometime as China is you know, finally exit economically from zero COVID and start growing its uh, economy again. Mm, anything you, know, you look forward to? Um, well, I can say that uh, the, the biggest thing that uh, I look forward to is getting back to some type of uh, normality. You know, I look forward to not teaching classes online. I look forward to my own kids going to school instead of uh, fighting with me for bandwidth as they take classes. I look forward to being able to, you know, see friends and colleagues and, and do all these things that we uh, didn't necessarily take for granted, but we've certainly been uh, somewhat restricted from doing over the past uh, two or three years. You know, I'm already thinking about a Chinese New Year party and how I might irritate my neighbors by hosting too many people. All right. Um, apart from our personal wishes, um, Victor, what would you say are the most, or the thing that you most look forward to and most worried about? But we're talking about um, international influence. You know, we've seen both Germany and Japan, uh, the two countries that unleashed the Second World War, beefing up their military spending. How worrisome does that seem to you? Or do you have any other events uh, in mind that you might be concerned about? Uh, for 2023, uh, one thing which is very optimistic is the expected significant bouncing back of the dynamic growth for the Chinese economy. And uh, this will take place in sharp contrast to the economic uh, miserable performance of some of the developed economies in the world, and many of which most likely will go into recession. So the dynamic growth of China's economy versus lackluster performance of quite a few of Western economies will be in sharp contrast. Now, the second thing is the continued rapid revolutionary breakthroughs in technologies. And this will happen at a time when the United States is really maximizing its pressure to impose sanctions or blockades of technological cooperation with China. I think there will be uh, more and more profound breakthroughs in AI and uh, many other technological uh, innovations. And eventually, I think sometime in 2023, if not one or two years beyond, the international community need to come up with some consensus view about how to deal with AI in general. Because I'm really concerned about AI eventually running amok and uh, even possibly subjugating uh, Homo sapiens to the dominance of AI. And if no timely measures are taken by mankind as a whole to uh, deal with this very dangerous prospect, eventually I think mankind may uh, really suffer the dire consequences. And I think 2023 may be a very crucial year for how mankind as a whole would realize the dire consequences of AI development in an uncontrollable manner, and whether mankind eventually will need to come up with some framework to regulate the rapid development of AI in general. Mm. Science and technology is a very novel perspective here. And uh, John, what's your take on this issue? Is there any event that you you think might be of uh, not that significant, but would uh, have great impact 
in the coming year? There's two different things when you say significant, right? One is, are they objectively significant? And secondly, are they well known? And they are, things which are well known are different in different parts of the world. I mean, as you know, I've lived, I've been working in China now for um, 13 years, and I've been following it for thir- more than 30 years. And but I was by chance I happened to be outside China when COVID broke out. So the, for three years, I've been seeing the situation in the West, um, and at the same time, been you know dozens of contacts with China every day. Therefore, I've got views on it. The, the things which are what is going to surprise the West is I, I've never known such a state of fantasy which exists in the West, uh, such misanalysis of the situation and extraordinarily inability to see the real situation in the world. And this is very dangerous. I mean, I remember, the thing was, remember the Adolf Hitler's famous statement before he launched the attack on the Soviet Union, one good kick at the door and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down which unleashed the biggest war in human history um, because he totally failed to understand the industrialization which had happened in the Soviet Union in its, in its capacities. Hitler then said two years later, if I'd known how many T-34 tanks the Soviet Union could produce, I would never have launched the war. But by then it was a bit, it was too late. And I think there are really dangers of disastrous miscalculations in the West, in which I think it's a very serious thing for everybody who can, media people, the people on this program, everybody else, not, not to make propaganda, but to explain the reality. I mean, let me take a fa- fa- something which just happens to see a fantasy example. The front page of the Economist magazine, one you know, not a not a trivial magazine. It's it's big front page on third of December was China's COVID failure. My God, a million people have died in the United States. A million more than a million people have died in Europe out of COVID. China has suffered in comparison to this, you know, around five, slightly over five thousand deaths. Is it a failure? This is it's unbelievable, demented type of thing. Then you have got pretty people's, every time there is a slowdown in, as Victor said, China's economy performance in 2020, everybody knows it was a bit less than previously. And this is turned into a great um, crisis. But what is the reality? If we go back three years, take the period of the pandemic. In the last three years, China's economy has grown three times as fast as the United States and five times as fast as the European Union. That's just the figures. Instead, I, I, every time I, I turn in the morning, because I'm an economist, I turn on Bloomberg more or less first thing in order to basically to catch up with the markets and the commentary. And they're discussing some, some economic problem in China. This is trivial. Look at the stagflationary crisis in the West, the highest inflation for 40 years. China's inflation has fallen during the COVID period. So it's not things are going to be completely taken by surprise. I agree with what very much with what uh, Victor said, that China's economy has every chance this year. Of course, we have to take sensible economic policy decisions, but China's been doing that for a long time, of vastly outperforming the economic situation in the West. This is going to come as a huge surprise to the situation in the West. So the, the thing which I think is most worrying, and I'd be most worried about, the good thing that's coming up is recovery of China's economy. I'd agree with, not, that's not recovery, further acceleration of China's economy. I agree very much with Victor about that is, that the lack of realistic analysis in the West has become truly scary. They're not facing the facts. They won't face up. And this can lead to a mistake of the disastrous type which Hitler made. That's my real fear, not merely for this year, over the whole, let's say, next next decade. Mm. But things won't just um, become reality just because some um, newspaper is saying it is. But uh, there is something really... Let me add to it. I, I agree with John. I agree with John. There, there is this disconnect from reality in the West, and it's stunning. And it's, of course, you can see it very, very clearly when the West is looking at China. It has really no understanding of what's happening here. 
but in addition to this, I don't even think they understand what's happening in their own countries. Um, and so that's, it, it's not just the disconnect of, of, of not understanding the other. They don't even understand themselves at this point. But to go back to uh, a specific issue that you raised earlier, I'm not concerned at all about Germany and Japan spending more on defense. This is, in fact, the only way to get them out of Washington's pocket. And so, you know, we know that it's going to make all of us a little nervous, but uh, it's better than them being perpetual puppets in Berlin and Tokyo. So let's hope for the best there. To respond to Victor's point about AI, there was a very compelling speech at the University of Nottingham uh, a few years ago by Jairus Victor Grove. He's a, he's a professor at Hawaii. And he wrote a very good book called uh, Savage Ecology. And his argument was that we're not at risk from, say, AI becoming smart and, and dominating us. What we're at risk from is that AI is being used now to accelerate our own poor decision-making. Uh, everyone is now using AI to collect data, but a lot of it's garbage in, garbage out. And that, you know, you have these strategic competitors using this AI that just risks us destroying ourselves as opposed to AI destroying us. And I come back to this because of the extraordinary failure of Facebook to materialize the metaverse this year in, in large measure because the computing capacity just doesn't exist yet. And that's probably an indicator that we're nowhere near the sort of AI that I think uh, that uh, is concerning to Victor, but but clearly still in the range of the sort that uh, is uh, concerning to Professor Grove. The only other thing that I saw, and it, it caught my attention because I was at the reactor in uh, Hofei earlier this year, and we're all thinking about energy, was the, um, the breakthrough, the fusion breakthrough at uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories in California. And we don't yet know whether or not that's going to substantially carry us forward in terms of uh, fusion energy. But, uh, you know, hope springs eternal. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Joseph, you just mentioned you're not worried about the, the hiked um, military spending of Germany. What about other events like uh, what we've seen, uh, the development in Kosovo, the flaring tension there? Uh, could it become the, you know, the new powder keg in Europe in the new year? Uh, possibly, but I think we're already looking at the possibility of, of multiple destabilizations in Africa, for example, because of uh, the energy crisis, because of uh, struggling to emerge from uh, the COVID downturns. Kosovo is one of the weak links of, of Europe. It's not surprising that this would be an area that would be a possible flashpoint. And I think, you know, you can just sort of predictively look at uh, whatever place was struggling before um, or, or, or lagging behind is going to be a place of, uh, of concern in the coming year. Mm. And, and Joseph, you uh, earlier mentioned that you're not worried about the situation in, in Ukraine, about the Ukraine crisis, but I'm not sure whether Victor and uh, John share the same view or do you have different opinion there? Uh, Victor? Uh, talking about the war in Ukraine, I think uh, uh, there are several things we need to be uh, aware of. One is that the war in Ukraine is a war that Russia cannot afford to lose. And it is really very dangerous to imagine a situation where the country with one of the largest nuclear arsenals will be cornered and its opponent would even want to inflict mortal wounds onto that country. Because the more you inflict defeat onto Russia, the more likely that it will choose to escalate. And if the war in Ukraine is escalated, mankind itself will be victimized. Now, the other thing is that if you really listen very carefully to what President Zelensky and his supporters in the Western countries are talking about, then the war in Ukraine is also one that Ukraine wants to win, but it cannot really realistically expect to win. 
therefore, the longer the war is protracted, the more、uh, losses of lives and properties on both sides will happen、uh, in the war. And eventually,、uh, Russia is more and more exhausted. For example, now whether this is the end game for the United States, just to bleed Russia to death or bleed Russia to collapse, we need to be very careful in checking this out. Therefore, the war in Ukraine will be extraordinary in historical terms,、uh, meaning that neither side will really achieve its desired strategic goal anytime soon, and both sides may. Be forced to bleed to death or exhaustion, and I think the implication for many other、uh, countries or regions will be profound, because eventually I think we need to conclude that a modern war or a war involving countries like Ukraine and Russia is not worthwhile, and eventually the end result and the consequences will be too much for anyone involved in such a war, and I think history will eventually also reveal. That the United States really has played a very dirty hand in this war, while claiming to be an angel or a savior. But I think the continued push of NATO to the doorstep of Russia is really the evil seed for this human tragedy unfolding in Ukraine.、Mm, And that- how to deal with that? That's a challenge for all of us to deal with that. Indeed, and John, what's your expectation here? Do you expect the Ukraine crisis to be further elevated, as Victor just said, or do you think it could be resolved in the new year? And what will、uh, will the energy crisis, and you know, that erupted after this Ukraine crisis, further worsen in the new year? Well, I think that I'm afraid. I think the situation is likely to get worse.、Um, this is a situation in which I would have some difference with Joseph. I, I lived in Moscow for eight years. From 1992 to 2000, and so I see the perspective through two things: through, through the Russian thing, but also what happens if you cross the red lines of a, a great power. You know, the world is not totally just, and great powers have red lines, and they won't allow people to cross them. The, I mean, the most scary event during my entire life was undoubtedly the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, it's the one situation I remember walking down the road. I was obviously young at the time, walking down the road and thinking that we may not be here on Monday. It was on, you know, on Saturday, right? And that was because the United States was absolutely clear: Soviet missiles would not be put in Cuba, and it would take any measures necessary to stop that, including world nuclear war. In that sense, in that situation, the Soviet leadership, which was stupid to put missiles in in the first place, had the good sense to take the missiles out again. Right? The United States has committed the first. Situation that is the stupidity of putting the missiles in, and that by that is the attempt to take Ukraine into NATO, which is the equivalent to the Soviet Union putting the missiles into Cuba from the point of crossing the red lines. But it hasn't yet shown the good sense that was shown by the Soviet leadership, which is to get the missiles out. That is in the sense of stopping this attempt to expand NATO into Ukraine. And as this is not merely, as Victor said, a war that R- Russia can't afford to lose, you've got to see how the world looks at Russia. R- Russia has been attacked by the most.、Um, Biggest dictators in human history. I mean, European history. Sorry, not in human history. Must, mustn't be too Eurocentric. It was attacked by Napoleon. It was attacked by Hitler. It just regards this attack by the United States as the third in a long line of such attacks. And it will mobilise and fight and stop it. It will stop it. The danger of escalation comes from the other side because Ukraine will lose the war. If Russia mobilises, Ukraine will lose the war, and then the danger is that NATO, instead of going from a proxy war, decides it's going to go into a, a real war that, that, to one where it directly commits forces into the situation. That I regard as the great、uh, risk in the situation. So I regard the situation in Ukraine as 
very dangerous. I don't agree on this matter with the situation of, of Joseph. As regards the indirect consequences of that, yeah, the big effect in the rest of the world is going to be a very bad economic situation in the rest of the world during 2023. 2022 is bad, but 2023 from the point of economic growth is going to be worse. But you know, I'm alarmed about the situation in Ukraine. Then uh, let, me, let me clarify that. I, all I, right. I, yeah, you know, when I say that I'm not worried about it, I certainly recognize that, that it's a flashpoint that could still spiral out of control and, and, and that we could see escalations. But I think we have not turned a corner, but I think we've reached, as I said earlier, an effective stalemate. I don't think Russia is going to escalate with nuclear weapons. It could. Um, I don't think Russia is losing. No, I just agree. With, I, I agree with Joseph on that. Just one sec. I don't think they'll use nuclear weapons either. Right. Go on. And I don't, I don't think Russia is losing now. I don't think anything else that uh, Biden or Zelensky add to the mix, like Patriot batteries in Kiev, I don't think that's going to change the tide. And I do think we're already seeing Berlin and uh, Paris starting to break ranks. I think we're starting to see a softening in their rhetoric, uh, a recognition of, of Russia's concerns. So I think what we've really reached is kind of an endpoint of uh, Biden's ability to advance this war much further than it already has. As a result, I think the, that what we're going to see in Washington is them realizing that the longer it continues, the more it undermines their efforts to prosecute their containment policy against China. So this is because they've made it clear that this is their number one strategic objective. I think that uh, that we're going to see maybe not a, a significant change in the conflict this year because I don't yet see uh, an exit strategy for either side. I don't see some way that they can negotiate uh, a peaceful settlement yet. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm just not that concerned about it, given the fact that I think it has in, in large measure run its course. So you're expected to continue throughout the, the next year? The crisis. Or I don't crisis. expect it to get worse. I think it's. I think it's as bad as it's going to get. Six months ago, I would have been worried about escalations, but given the now predictable turn that we're seeing, and with Macron and Schultz, and uh, more and more, what we're hearing from leading European intellectuals that that the United States is the sole victor, that the United States has been profiting from this war. I think this public opinion is now turning, and it's only going to turn further, uh, especially as Germany starts to to try to uh, you know, get past just surviving uh, the winter and starts trying to, to see whether or not it's going to be able to rebuild its uh, industrial-led uh, economic growth, which is very, very doubtful at this point. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, in, in sort of big geostrategic concerns, that that war has, has reached not the end, but the end of its ability to gain more for either side. So eventually it's going to either resolve or just get stuck like Korea. So far, we've been focusing on the political events um, or the political aspects. But uh, I want to ask one more um, on economic side. We've touched upon um, the recovery in the new year. But um, are we going to see more unilateral decoupling events or will globalization and multinationalism regain some momentum in the new year, Victor? I always refuse to believe that the United States will eventually achieve the decoupling. Why? Ever since... The China-U.S. engagement, let's say, uh, starting in the 19th century all the way up to 1949, the U.S. policy has always been open-door policy for China and equal opportunity in China. At that time, Britain really commanded the lion's share of business of China, and the United States did not want to be left out. And uh, starting from 1911, for example, the United States turned the table and uh, dominated in, uh, the businesses and relations and all the way up to 1949. Now, uh, then the United States bet on the wrong horse and uh, KMT, uh, supported by the United States, lost the civil war. And the United States uh, was debating who lost China ever since 1949, all the way up to about 1971, 72, and eventually up to 79. And over the past 
for decades or so, both China and the United States really benefited a great deal from the mutual engagement and cooperation. Therefore, I think for the United States to talk about decoupling, even if they really want to do it, it's impossible for them to deliver. Why? Because to achieve real decoupling from China probably will be the equivalent of economic suicide for the United States. And now they are talking about selective decoupling, that is, they want to decouple in certain areas that they want, and they do not want to decouple in certain other areas that they want to continue engagement with China. So this is a position of illogicality, and uh, uh, it's not a pragmatic or realistic goal at all. Uh, Therefore, I think the United States need to uh, wait until a time when the overall size of the Chinese economy will definitely surpass that of the United States, and the United States will realize that, well, the sun keeps rising up in the east every morning. And there is no fundamental change because China is not going to be uh, the next superpower because China wants to deal with all countries because more as an equal rather than dominating against anyone, to say the least of the United States, for example, imposing China's views and system onto other countries. I think based on that more sophisticated and in-depth understanding of what the United States is really desiring, for example, I think eventually there will be a mellowing down of the U.S. anti-China hostility, and there will be a more maturing up of the United States position against or vis-a-vis China. And that's the world of tomorrow, let's say beyond 2030 or beyond 2035. And I think we should not waste time. I think we should keep engaging with the United States. This is one of the reasons why I'm here in Washington, D.C. And I want to talk to people in government, outside of government, etc. Despite of the frostiness of the relations between the two countries in general, and I think if China gives up hope for re-engaging with the United States, refusing to be decoupled from the United States and all the Western countries, for example, then probably we will be on a slippery slope leading all the way into a big abyss. We cannot lose hope. Right. And then, uh, John, uh, to your knowledge, can we expect any progress in ending the WTO dispute settlement crisis in the new year? You know, um, the WTO pilot body is very important to things to a certain degree. It's kind of uh, ensuring the global economy going in the uh, right direction or going as smoothly as possible. What's your take? Well, I'm not sure whether the specific question of WTO appellate situation will be sorted out. What I do know, but I think whatever it is, the countries will pursue their fundamental interests anyway. And what's clear is there is only really one country that wants to decouple, which is the United States. Most of the rest of the world, the overwhelming majority of the rest of the world, about 95% of the rest of the world refuses to go, well, doesn't want to go along with this. The difference is in some some parts of the world, people have said no to the United States. The most strategic is the question of, Asia, for example. I mean, in Asia, you have every type of government you could possibly imagine arranging. You know, you've got socialist governments in China, Vietnam. You've got a monarchy in Thailand. You've got various types of republics, etc. It couldn't be more politically diverse. But the one thing they stood up for is that they're not going to have the same type of chaos in Asia that the United States has introduced into Europe. So, for the you know, United States, been trying to create a crisis in the South China Sea, for example, you know, for years and years and years, and there hasn't been one. I've spoken at you know conferences about the crisis in the South China Sea, and I say I'm sorry to put you know 
to tell you, there's not going to be a crisis in the South China Sea. More or less the same situation is now clearly developing in the Middle East, where the United States has been trying to do all sorts of bad things, bad mouth in China. And um, Xi Jinping's just attended one of the biggest uh, summits ever held in, in the Arab world in the Middle East. In Europe, the, I'm afraid that the countries have given in to what the United States wants and produced absolute chaos in their own country, you know, in their own continent, rather, with, the, um, with a very bad economic situation, a major war going on. So therefore, really, whatever is the legalistic situation that exists in the WTO, the real question is whether most of the countries in the world are going to stand up, the United States not. And so far, the question is, as opposed to its closest, a few of its closest allies, they have. They won't go along with what the United States wants. Under those conditions, the world is not going to decouple. The United States may decouple, but the rest of the world doesn't want to decouple. That doesn't want it to give up globalization. So whatever is the um, judicial situation within the WTO, the result will be the same. Most of the rest of the world won't go along with what the US has done, and they'll find a way to sort that out either through the WTO or by some other means. And hopefully in the new year, they can solve this problem. And last question to all of you, should we be pessimistic or optimistic about 2023? Very briefly, Victor? I think we need to be cautiously pessimistic about 2023 based on longer term optimism for the overall trend of development between China and the United States on the one hand, between China and the West in general, for the medium and longer term, and an absolute optimism for the longer term, for a better world to come. Great. And uh, Joseph, please. Yeah, you know, we live in complicated times, and this means, above all, uh, avoiding simple binaries like whether uh, we should be optimistic or pessimistic. I do think it's going to be a challenging year in foreign affairs. I think it's going to be challenging uh, to, to see the sort of recoveries we want socially and economically from COVID. Uh, and I think we'll continue to see troubles associated with climate change, extreme weather, and energy security. What I am optimistic about, though, are two things. First, I agree that uh, the prospects for peace in Asia, uh, despite the differences, are very high. I think uh, Peter Ping's point that uh, can begin in Asia is, is very astute, um, and I'm, I'm very optimistic there. Uh, but furthermore, if you live in China, you ought to be optimistic. You don't have a perfect government, but it's much better than most. And above all, it's built to respond to crises and to make substantial progress, whatever the headwinds. So it might be a hard year everywhere, but it won't be as bad in China as it is in other places. So if you are in China, or even if you're somewhere else, get your own house in order, be healthy, be kind, and prepare yourself and your families to make the most of your strength. Thanks. Last but not least, John. Well, I, I think in serious matters, and these are very serious matters, there's, there's no virtue in optimism and there's no virtue in pessimism. There's only a virtue in realism. So I'll tell you in a slightly different terms what's going to be good and what's going to be bad. What's going to be good is um, China's going to develop coming out of the 20th Party Congress and for the economic reasons next year. That's, that's going to go well. I'm relatively optimistic of the situation of Latin America, the Middle East, and Asia because they're sta- they're all standing up to the United States and not going along with the decoupling, the military aggression, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm pretty pessimistic about the situation in Europe because it's decided to go along with the United States and has therefore created chaos. And I'm not terribly optimistic about the um, situation in the United States. I think that despite the very welcome bloody nose that Trump got through, got in the um, midterm elections in the United States, somebody rather nasty, DeSantis or somebody. Is going to crawl out of the um, woodwork from the uh, of the Republican part and threaten the world with all sorts of unpleasant and bad things. So I'm pretty pessimistic there. So a, a mixed bag of what's going to happen in, in in the world, but very good things in China, very good things in large parts of the world. Well, I try to be an optimist, and we are hoping there could be fewer uncertainties and headwinds in the new year. 
And on that note, we conclude today's chat. Many thanks to John Ross, senior fellow at Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China; Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations, East China Normal University; and Victor Gao, chair professor at Suzhou University, for sharing your views with us. Wish all of you and our listeners a safe, healthy, and prosperous New Year. Please feel free to leave a review or a comment for us, and subscribe to the Chat Lounge wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tuyin. Thank you for being with us. See you next week.